Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Christopher, we are back to do this third and final episode on the book of Isaiah. We're covering chapters 50 through 66 today. Now, I know the Come Follow Me curriculum has this divided up into five different sections. We had originally planned on doing five episodes on Isaiah, but there were various things that made us not be able to meet that exact schedule. So we decided to condense it into three. It was more difficult to condense it into three than I, I actually expected. I have gained uh, quite an appreciation for Isaiah through this. You know, it's even in, in our tradition, but even in the broader Christian tradition is, you know, very well respected. And I'm seeing more in this study why, why I think that is the case. We've talked about how Isaiah is speaking to a particular time and a place. What happens though, as we look and study Isaiah, is we find that many of the things that he's saying are fundamentally true on a level that makes them easily adapted, uh, applied to many times and places. And so what happens is as people read it, they start feeling like Isaiah is talking about them, or he's talking about something that is going to happen to them or within their time and place. We said Isaiah was a crisis manager. This is kind of an idea that uh, we got from PDENS. And, you know, it occurred to me that in a sense, there's always a crisis, right? You know, whether it's at an individual or a family or a community or a nation or even at a world level, there's always some sort of crisis at one level or another. This is why Isaiah speaks in what Jesus says in 3 Nephi. He says, Isaiah speaks touching all things concerning my people. And I think that as we look at Isaiah as this crisis manager, then we often can feel like he's speaking to us in that sort of sense, right? Even though Isaiah is talking about something very specific and particular to his time and place and very near future or very near past. Many of the things that we read in Isaiah, especially that we cover in the reading today or that the reading covers today, whether we really talk about them or not, they don't seem to have been fulfilled in the way that the people at the time expected 
or even as many subsequent generations have expected them to be fulfilled. And this is why I think Isaiah is also often looked at eschatologically or as talking about end times, some distant future to him, but it's a future that's always a near future to quote unquote us, right? Because bliss always follows crisis or we expect it to, right? There's going to be some crisis and we're reading Isaiah and we see this. And then we see after the crisis, what does Isaiah say? Oh, there's this restoration and there's this bliss and everything is good. And this is kind of what we expect to come after our crisis. And so I think that as we arrive to those points in Isaiah, to these points that for many generations, people haven't been able to pin necessarily as as completely fulfilled. And so they're always looking at at some sort of end times for these things to, to come to pass. I think that's how they, they get contextualized or reinterpreted to people within their traditions or even individually. Beautifully put, Ben. You know, we'll probably come to this toward the end because the book of Isaiah ends in the same way that the New Testament ends. That's putting it anachronistically, of course, but there is a new heaven and a new earth in the end. Mm-hmm. And so there's something to talk about there too, right? The the idea that the that the world ends in some one-time event sense and other ways to think about that, right? As you mentioned, Ben, there are crises that happen in, in all generations, right, of time. And as I've read ancient history, you know, from ancient historians, from secondary sources also, and as I've, as I've studied the past, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, a couple of things relevant to this episode come up. One is that these signs of the times that we place in, in our way of reading these scriptures, we place these in that context, in that eschatological, in that end times context, and, and we read them in that way as if these signs weren't always already there. This is something the Stoics wrote about in antiquity, mm-hmm. right? That the world just keeps on going and the same things happen over and over again. And all of these signs, I've seen them over and over again myself, just as I've traveled through time, as it were, in reading history. And so that's one thing. Another is, where is this all going? Are we moving in a direction we can see? Because if we're moving toward a new heaven and a new earth, we can go back and we can look and we can see that in the time of the text that we're studying, in the time before that, in the time of Moses, that this was a time that's different from the time that follows it. When Jesus comes, there's a sense in which God is abstract and not really present, but through symbols, you know, whether it be, interestingly, as we pointed out last time, God is carrying Israel around in the desert, and Israel is carrying God around in the desert, (laughs) right? So they have this, this representation, but it's kind of abstract, not really present in the way that it becomes in the incarnation, right? If you think of Jesus as the incarnation of God, now God is present among us, in that way. And then we move, you know, as it were, through through faith into a different age, an age of knowledge. And there's a difference between faith and between knowing. And so we may be moving into an era of, of knowledge, of knowing. Carl Jung was once asked if he believed in God, and he answered, no, I know God. It's not the same thing to have belief as it is to have knowledge. And as I look at the the arc of history, it looks like it's bending 
toward justice, as Martin Luther King Jr. had it, and it is bending toward some kind of unity of consciousness, some kind of return to God. You know, you were talking about the way that we often will see the fulfillment of, of these things. I, I, I often think about that as sort of what I might call a lifetime bias, right? Like, or a lifespan bias. It's that, you know, we have our, our lifespan and our life experience, and we often look at these things, you know, either scripturally or, or otherwise, and we see they're, they're playing out in fulfillment within our lives. And so we think, oh, you know, this is what a time to be alive, right? Have you ever heard that? Where, you know, yes. what a time to be alive where all the fulfillment of the things are happening right now, you know? And it's like, it, it's such an interesting thing to say because it's like, yes and no, you know, like they're always, always happening. Yeah. Always remember you're unique, just like everyone else, you know? That's right. <laughs> yeah. And it's this lifespan bias that we have, right? That, that we're experiencing something unique in our life that's never been the case before. And it's like, we are and we aren't at the same time experiencing that. And, and it's just an interesting sort of paradox to consider in terms of biblical, quote unquote, prophecy, and especially with Isaiah because of how it gets reinterpreted over and over within yeah. these you know, different generations. The idea is, is contradicted in, in the Bible, right? In Ecclesiastes, we get Kohelet, right? We get, there's nothing new under the sun. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you think you're living in a unique and none of this stuff's ever happened before. It's all, it's all happened before. You know, there's, there's literature. It's all happened before and it will all happen again. Right. <laughs> Being a child of the seventies, you know, I, I was born in 69. I can't help but think of the song. I can't remember who sang it. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so some of the things that we're going to go into this time, Christopher, deal with, this particular case of what's called the suffering servant. And I know we have a lot of particular things to say about that, but to sort of zoom back out onto the broader context of Isaiah, we've kind of brought this up before in the previous two episodes. Isaiah is a book, obviously, in, in the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. And we often have ascribed the entire book to a single author. Scholars have looked at it and said this is at least two, probably three authors going on here. And we're going to hit a point in this, what we're covering, the chapters that we're covering this time, where we go from the second Isaiah to the third Isaiah, what scholars might call the third Isaiah as well. So just to recap that, you've got chapters 1 through 39 that are ascribed to the first Isaiah, or it would be more like 1 through 36. And the 37, 38, and 39 are kind of a, a retelling of the story in, in Second Kings. Could have existed with that original text, or maybe were, were added later as a transition into Second Isaiah, which goes from chapters 40 to 55. And then we get what might be Third Isaiah from 56 through 66. Do I have those numbers correct, do you think, Christopher? I think so. You know, the, the third Isaiah is not as clear maybe as, as there being a second Isaiah. And this is important to understand because the first Isaiah, this is the historical Isaiah, son of Amos, of Jerusalem. And his context, as you pointed out, Ben, is found in Second Kings. 
and it's repeated again and at the end of what we consider his writings. Okay, so that's the historical Isaiah. He's the pre-exilic Isaiah. Right, that's his context, right? Pre-exilic, the Assyrians are bearing down. There's going to be the exile. Now, the second Isaiah is writing three generations later, a couple hundred years in around. So the first Isaiah is writing around 700 BCE, the second Isaiah in 500 BCE, different context. This is now, we're in exile, and he's pointing to a return of a remnant and a restoration. So that's the context, right? And then uh, third Isaiah is doing something different. And how we know these things is how scholars know these things, right? Is that you can see from the, first of all, there's differences in the writing itself. These mm-hmm. aren't going to necessarily show up in translation. Most likely they don't. And and yet, you know, they're easy, more easily detectable in the original language. And, you know, there, there are differences in style and there are differences in themes. And there's also context, you know, set and setting. You, if you can see, you know, this is written from the point of view of the exile has already occurred. And, and so sometimes we try to explain these things away by saying that, that the prophet sees into the future in a way that doesn't really look like what is going on with Isaiah. Isaiah is someone who is, he feels called of God to speak to the social and economic injustices and the drunken ruling class and the people who, who should turn back to God, back to Yahweh. And he's saying these things and he's telling them what's happening. Like what's, again, the Assyrians are at the gate, right? They're bearing down on us and this is what's going to happen. And when he tells, again, my favorite example, when he tells the king, of southern Judah, who gets a visit from the king of Babylon because he said he it was bringing a gift, and he and the king of southern Judah shows the king of Babylon his treasure, and then Isaiah says, "This is not going to end well." <laughs> <laughs> I, I prophesy that was obvious mistake, dude. <laughs> right? Yeah. So they're reading the writing on the wall, as we say, right? And they're telling what's going to happen. To wake up, you know, wake up and smell the coffee or wake up and smell the postum, right? <laughs> <laughs> I got to say that my, so this being the third week that we're recording on Isaiah, I feel like my understanding or conceptualization of who Isaiah was and, and what he's talking about or what this book in the Bible is, has come more into focus as the weeks have gone on. I feel like it's more in focus now than it was previously. Not that I, you know, had like wrong ideas before, but I just feel like things are a little more solid and formed now of what I really feel Isaiah is getting after. I also have to say that I prefer the theology of the second Isaiah to the first Isaiah. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) There's some chapters here in these ones that we're covering today that are just beautiful. They're just like poetry, and they, they talk about a God that is so much more familiar to me than, than so much that we have gone over in the Old Testament. I feel like here in this second Isaiah, finally there's this, you know, we talk about God shining through the cracks, and I feel like there's a really big crack right here All right. in Isaiah, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a God that is much more recognizable to me and my experience and and no wonder this is so heavily alluded to in the New Testament and the Book of Mormon, because this is the God that I think Jesus can relate to more, right? Amen, brother. Great, great homily. <laughs> Good stuff. So there are four servant songs. There's Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Then there's Isaiah 49, 
1 through 13, then Isaiah 50, 4 through 11, and Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. How does that work? Well, the chapters, chapters are weren't there originally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The chapters weren't there originally. Yeah. And neither were the chapter headings. So what do you mean by servant songs, Christopher? So these are the passages in Isaiah, and that includes first and second Isaiah, though mostly second Isaiah that deal with. And as a matter of fact, I could even, I, I think you could make a case. It might not be easy, but I, I think it might be possible to say that, I don't know, who am I to say this? Sometimes you think my midrash is as good as anybody else's, but I see a difference between what I see in Isaiah 42 and what I see in Isaiah 49 and 50 and 52 and 53. So arguably, I, yeah, I, I won't be publishing a monograph or anything. But yeah, these are the passages that deal with the suffering servant, at least those in second Isaiah and as scholars see it, also Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. And so to me, the suffering servant, obviously in our tradition as Christians, this is according to the gospel writers, right? According to the authors of the New Testament, this is going to be Jesus. Mm -hmm. And as a Christian, I would agree that Jesus does fit the description of the suffering servant, but there's, but we have to back up and figure out what does that mean and where is that coming from? And so if we go all the way back here to Isaiah and we look at what, what it says in Isaiah about who the suffering service is, it actually says it's Israel. So it's the nation of Israel who is the suffering servant. And yet the poet personalizes the suffering servant in a person who is then described in no uncertain terms. And we're all familiar with those terms. These are passages that we think of in terms of Jesus, right? And in, those, in, in that description, we can see played out the Gospels, right? The, the New Testament, what the New Testament authors took uh, from this context and transplanted into their own context and made about the life of Jesus. Now, in Isaiah itself, we see some language that, again, we, we, refer, we think of it as referring to Jesus, that is also found in Jeremiah. And we're going next to Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, Jeremiah calls himself a lamb, you know, led to the slaughter. And he says that he, that, you know, people were conspiring to cut him off from the living. And these are the exact words, right, that show up mm -hmm. in Isaiah that we say have to do with Jesus. Again, that's the way that they were written into the story, that this narrative, that that's this continuous narrative that we've woven as ethical monotheists, I guess. I mean, because the, it continues on in the Muslim tradition, right, in the, in the Quran. Chronologically speaking, Jeremiah would exist between first and second Isaiah. So if you right. have a first Isaiah and then you have Jeremiah and then you have a second Isaiah, obviously second Isaiah, if he's talking or alluding to some experiences that Jeremiah had, then you know that would make sense because chronologically he comes yeah. after him. Yeah, let me read from Jeremiah eleven nineteen. This is Jeremiah. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. And that's not the only, that's maybe the clearest, you know, word for word, you know, same language, same verbiage. But mm -hmm. if you know Jeremiah, you can really, you can read the whole of chapter 53 of Isaiah, and you can see point by point how 
it could be read as Jeremiah or Jesus, according to what yeah. we have from the New Testament authors, right? Yeah. And from a Christian's perspective, there's no reason you can't look at it and be like, oh, this is taking the experience of Jeremiah and then sort of typifying it. Like we talk about types of Christ, right? You know, typifying it of a quote unquote suffering servant. And then within the Christian context, that becomes all embodied within Jesus. And when the, the New Testament writers are writing, they're taking these things from the, the Old Testament or from Isaiah, and they're saying, look at, at all of this stuff. It's all true, and it's all fulfilled within the person of Jesus. Like He fits all of this, everything that denotes a faithful servant, a person who is in a covenant relationship with God, and he fits the bill, right? So to speak. Right. And that person, you say person in a covenant relationship with God, really is a nation, right? It's the nation of exactly. Israel. And that's mm -hmm. spelled out right in Isaiah. And yet, again, the poet still personifies that in this individual, right? Again, yes. it's a personification. My servant Israel, yeah. And doesn't name him who the suffering servant is, any more than he names himself. We don't know who wrote this, right? That's yeah. This is second yeah. Isaiah. And so another interpretation, actually, Ben, that I've run into is that Isaiah himself, or the, the writer of this, of this text, the second Isaiah, is the suffering servant. Or is one of those people that's experiencing the exile as part of the group of the return of the of the remnant that have returned because one exactly. of the concepts here is that yes it's israel but it's not all of israel the suffering servant is particularly the exiles who have returned the remnant who has returned that's the suffering servant they've gone into exile and with their stripes we are healed right so this is the right. whole idea is that these people have gone and been punished it was unjust this, you know, Isaiah goes through this. It's it's interesting. It was unjust that it happened, but it needed to happen. And now that they've come back, we're able to rebuild. And uh, all of this gets personified again within the, the one person, but it's actually talking about a group of people that have had this experience and their experience comes back to enrich and, and breathe new life into the identity of the Jewish people, of the Israelite people, so that they can you know, have a new heaven and a new earth, so to speak, right? They rebuild their temple. Everything is new again, right? We're, we're, we're a new creation. And it's like when we talked about in Genesis, you know, that, that eighth day is the, the day of the, the new week, the new creation, when, when everything starts over again. Yeah. And that's, again, a theme that we see over and over in Isaiah and, and with this ending, right? And in, in the end of this whole book, what we call Isaiah, that it ends with this new heavens and new earth, which is that again mirrored later on in, in the book of Revelation in the Bible and put at the end of the mm -hmm. book as, as eschatological. And we'll get to that. We'll have more to say about that when the time comes. In the end times, just kidding, next year. <laughs> ben, there's something else I wanted to say about this, the way that we read Isaiah, right? It's something that we mentioned last week. There's this letter that's from Dante, the poet, Dante Alighieri, the, the medieval, the poet of the, 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 divine, the divine comedy. And Can Grande de la Scala, who just has the coolest name, right? The big dog at the step. <laughs> and in this letter, Dante details ways that the commedia could be read, that the divine comedy can be read at different levels. And this is done 
with scripture and it's he gives an example in the letter and you can really divide the readings in two to begin with okay so the the first way of reading it is in the in the Jewish tradition it's called peshat right this is the literal or historical now i say historical and i'm using air quotes here you can't see me but historical in the sense of sacred history i'm not claiming historicity i'm just saying the the literal historical sacred history wise history this is one reading right what what the text says on the face of it and that's not an uncontroversial definition by the way rabbis still argue about exactly what is meant by peshat but then there's derash and Maybe we've talked about Midrash, right? Midrash would be Mm -hmm. commentary. So now this is sort of the applied reading. What do you do with it, right? And so this is going to be more of a mystical and more of an allegorical interpretation. Allegorical from the Greek aleon, which in Latin uh, means other or different. So other or different than the meaning on the face of it, the face value of the text, right? And so there's three ways that you can read it under this. So I said two ways earlier, right? So literal and then mystical or historical or allegorical. And then the mystical allegorical breaks down into the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. And so these are just different ways that the text can be read. And so it was interesting to me that one of the, one of the great, two of the great scholars, you know, Torah scholars, the great thinkers of the Jewish world and, and of the Islamic world too. Saadia Gaon was one of the one of the writers in the Jewish tradition who wrote Hebrew and Arabic. This was done in the Middle Ages. You know, he was writing because this is the Islamic at he's, world. He's using the Hebrew language but writing it in Arabic script. No, he's writing classical Arabic in Hebrew script. Oh, the other way around. Right. Okay, it's the Arabic language, but written in a Hebrew script. And so here's here's a thinker. And Ibn Ezra also gave the same interpretation of Jeremiah as the suffering servant from, you know, from his exegesis of the text. But it was interesting to me that these two scholars being, you know, from the 10th century, the two of the earlier ones, perhaps that said this, Saadia Gaon, he is a anti-Karaite. So he's not for the face reading, you know, the the face value, the face of it reading of the text alone, he's okay with Midrash. And yet he reads this one as right here in the text, this is Jeremiah saying, he's like this. And here's the prophet saying, he's like this. That says what it says. (laughs) It says what it says, right? Yeah, exactly. So there are different ways that we can read the text. And we do tend to read it allegorically. And that's the way that it matters to us, Ben. You were saying earlier that we read it as though it's all about us, right? And and I said, you're so vain. But this is really the only way that it actually means anything to us. Because if I if it does happen that, you know, there's a one-time event, end of the world, rather as opposed to the kind of end of the world that happens all the time, you know, when we had the the recent pandemic, mm-hmm. my kids and I, we we were we we're homeschooling anyway. So I, I say we stay home. We we didn't stay home. We were already staying home. But we were watching from the great courses and learning about the Black Death. And this is a time period that I study a lot just as a hobby, really. The Renaissance in, in, in Italy, specifically in Florence. And here you have the world ends. The world where the merchant couldn't marry into the royal class ended when there weren't enough of the royal class for the royal class to marry. 
Mm. <laughs> and right, and so then the Medici go from banksters to popes and kings, rather than banksters to the popes and kings, they become the popes and the kings, or you know they marry, meaning they marry into the royal families, their daughters, and they and they buy the papacy. So this kind of thing happens, right? But that's not what happened in the Renaissance is not necessarily relevant to me. And it's part of my context, right? That's relevant. But and then what's going to happen after I die is also not relevant to me. But all of this is already always happening now. It's happening to me. It's happening to you. And Jesus pointed the way to that new heaven and new earth, to the kingdom of God. It's an inner realization. That's what's happening. And I think it's happening at a global level, Ben. I think it's happening among people who don't profess Christ, who don't even profess religion. I think it's happening. You know, just a couple weeks ago, I was visiting with some extended family members, and we were talking about Isaiah and different interpretations of it. And one of the things that was brought up was this interpretation that one of these servants, the suffering servant, was actually somebody that hasn't come yet, right? (laughs) You know, we have all these interpretations of who was in history, and one of the interpretations is somebody that hasn't come yet. And uh, it, one of the ideas was posited that it is some specific person you know, that hasn't come yet. As we're talking, you know, towards the end of the conversation, you know, it kind of occurred to me, look, guess who the servant is? It's, it's you. It's me. It's him. It's her. It's us, right? It's, it's us as the covenant people of God who are supposed to take upon ourselves his name, the name of Christ, or, you know, in the Old Testament, the idea is that they take upon themselves the name of God, or he puts his name on them. And so, you know, in terms of relevancy, this servant is you, right? And so that's one of the ways to read Isaiah. You know, again, you're so vain, but like you said, that's that's ultimately where we have to to pull the meaning from is is to look at ourselves and how this applies to us. Thinking of sacred cosmology, what's the point of the sacred mountain? It's at the center of the world, right? It's the axis mundi, and it's the place where heaven and earth meet, and that's always where the temple is. That's the idea, right? It's the the temple mount, right? It's the mount that originally we get, and then we get the temple that... But there's more than one center of the world, and that's because... And when I say world, I mean cosmos. I mean the order of things, all of it, right? There's more than one center because there's none. And so in reality, you are at the center of the universe, and so am I. And you're in Missouri and I'm in California, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not that we're sitting across from each other. Yeah. The place where heaven and earth meet is within you, right? Is it not even within our theology or you know, our, our conception of, of human nature is that we have a spirit and a body, you know, spirit and, and matter, and that that's the conjoining of, of heaven and earth. And so where heaven and earth meet is within you. The kingdom of God is, is within you. And so that, that is at the individual level and then also at a community level. That's the case as well. Before I was talking with my mother-in-law some days ago about different ways of conceptualizing of the symbolism of the sacrament. And, and I think one of these ideas was expressed some podcasts ago that I had with Tom Bogle. And one of the ideas that he said, or at least what I understood from what he said, maybe he didn't even say this. This is what I understood when he said it was that, you know, one of the interesting ways of of conceptualizing the symbolism of the sacrament is that first you have the bread where where each piece that is torn is individual, unique. There's never been a piece of bread that's torn that's identical to another piece of bread that's torn in, in the history of the world, right? 
So every single one is unique and each person takes one of those. And then at the same time, you have the cup, which originally, and even in the earlier church, you had a single cup that everybody drank from, right? So first you had something that applied at an individual level, and then you had something that applied at a community level. So it was acknowledging, you know, the, the uniqueness of the individual, but then also unifying them ultimately within a single community. Beautiful. So having covered, you know, the major themes, shall we then now go through and talk about some of the things in particular that we want to bring out? Yeah, sure. So we're starting today at chapter 50, right? Yes. And that's, you know, one of the Suffering Servant songs. It's not the one that I really wanted to spend the most time with, which is Isaiah 53. And we've actually already really covered that <laughs> quite a bit. We have. We, we, we might just kind of breeze through that a little bit when we get to it. But, you know, something stood out to me about ver- or chapter 50, verse 1. And it was, I was looking at the different translations that I, that I usually read, and that's NRSV and then KJV, your King James Version. And in the NRSV, we get this phrase, no, because you're, of your sins, you were sold. It's using the passive voice here. Whereas in the King James Version, it actually uses a reflexive and it says you sold yourselves. And this is actually could be a theological difference in terms of conceptualizing what sin is and how it acts upon us and our relationship with God. And you're saying for your sins, you were sold. This is a passive voice. It could be, could be anything that is, is going on here. It could be some external force that is doing this. There's no there's no subject within this. Whereas in the King James Version, it's it's reflective and it's saying, you sold yourselves, right? The 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 blame for all of this, for all of everything that happened is is upon the individual. So I just thought that was a you know a not so subtle difference in translation that could ultimately lead to a, a quite a theological divide with upon the, the concept of sin and and what it means for the individual. Or it expresses and gives evidence of such a divide. Sure. And that's where the translation comes from, right? So yeah, exactly. So surprisingly, I don't think we've said, as much as we've talked about translation, Ben, I don't think we've said that that there's this problem that the translation, any translation of these kind of texts that have to be interpreted is going to be, it's going to have interpretive assumptions, right? It's So there's going to be theology baked into the translation. I have an example myself from the last chapter. I can wait until we get to it. Another example where where the King James Version has a theological assumption baked into it that I don't see looking not at another translation, but at the Hebrew. And I consulted my own rabbi on this one. Starting in with 51 through most of chapter 53, for me, these are some of the most beautiful verses in scripture. And they're like a love poem from God to us or from God to his people. You know, when we talked about Psalms and even like Song of Solomon, these were love poems of the people or of the person to God, writing to God. And here in Isaiah, it's almost we're getting the reciprocal of that, right? We get God talking to his people and talking, you know, about all of these metaphors or symbolism that, that evoke his love. And him expressing that. And so that's some of the, the beauty that I see in it. Well, yeah. And where is this going? Look at Isaiah 54. Now Israel's the bride and mm-hmm. Yahweh is the bridegroom. Yep. That's how it works. And so, you know, thank God I was inspired by the muses when I met my wife because I have no idea how to write a <laughs> poem. And yet there it is. You can go to ChristopherHurtado.com and read it. I don't know where that came um, from. 
the collective unconscious, maybe? Yeah, definitely. You tied into it, plugged into that. Chapter 51, verse 9 mentions a name, Rahab. Just briefly want to note on this. This is a mythological sea monster within Canaanite mythology, and it's comparable to Tiamat within the Babylonian mythology. And so this is evoking a, a creation myth, and it's talking about the, that sea monster being overcome within the creation. And so, again, this is part of the the servant these servant songs, right? This fits within one of them, and it's evoking the the power that the people have as as Israel or the servant has to overcome this chaos, this mythological sea monster, so to speak, of of the world through its covenant relationship with God. I mean, yeah, what we get over and over in the Bible is creation. Okay, things went back into chaos again. So we go, you know, from chaos to to cosmos, right? From chaos to order. And then you get disorder again. <laughs> and so And so the story goes. Yeah. There's something interesting that happens at verse 19 of chapter 51. And I, when I was reading it, I thought this this isn't how I remember it. There's something different here. I remember this phrase differently. And then I went and looked at it in the KJV, which I had listened to. And I was like, wait, it's the same phrase. What am I remembered differently? And I'm like, oh, I'm remembering the Book of Mormon phrase, which is different. And so it turns out that chapter 51 verses 19 and 20 are different in the Book of Mormon than anywhere else when, when Nephi is quoting Isaiah. And in the NRSV and KJV, it's, it says, these two things have come unto thee. And I, I was looking at commentary on these verses, and these were all talking about like calamities and destruction that were coming upon the people. So it's these two things. The issue is that in the translation is that things, the word things is implied. It, it really just uses the word two. And the things that we have in English is, is implied. In the Book of Mormon, it doesn't say things. It says these two sons. And this has become personified as if it's talking about two particular people. And this was interesting to me just in trying to enter maybe the mind of Joseph Smith and how he viewed this. You know, what is he thinking when he, there's this phrase here that says these two sons. It's possible. I'm speculating here because I searched and searched and I couldn't find any commentary on this, you know, Obviously not from any broad Christian source, but even in LDS sources, I couldn't find any commentary on this. But it seemed to me that Joseph Smith was saw a fulfillment of this these words, this prophecy in the Book of Mormon that said these two sons as opposed to these two things as embodied in humanity, perhaps even himself and one of his associates, you know, these two sons. It's possible he saw himself as one of the people that that is a fulfillment of this prophecy as spoken in the Book of Mormon, as opposed to how we have it translated within the other scriptural texts. Again, in verse 20, it says, save these two, you know, that all have fainted, save these two, which is an addition to the text within Book of Mormon that's not in the others. And so, like I said, I couldn't find any any commentary on this, but it was it's just a little meditation I was doing on, you know, why does this exist differently in the Book of Mormon, at least within the mind of Joseph Smith? What did he see this as? Why was this significant? And within, within the co broader commentary on this verse, this seems to be footnoted to Revelation and the point in Revelation where you have the, the two prophets that are preaching in Jerusalem. And this is, with again, within Latter-day Saint scripture, these two 
scriptures are linked and footnoted. Whereas in the broader Christian scripture, this is talking about calamities that are going to be set to people. It's not talking about people at all. And so this is a very different interpretation and approach to these verses. Yeah, that's Joseph Smith's Midrash. Isn't there an interpretation of Joseph Smith as the suffering servant? Oh, I'm sure. You know, that that definitely fits the bill. I mean, he, he literally, he, you know, we've got him in section 135, the Doctrine and Covenants, written by John Taylor, that he says he's going as a lamb to the slaughter, right? I mean, that's there. Right. So, it, so then if Joseph Smith is the suffering servant, are we saying it's not Jesus? No. If we're saying it's Jesus, are we saying it's not Jeremiah? No. Yeah. If we're saying it's not a Jeremiah, if we're saying it's an Israel, is it then not Jeremiah? No. Yeah, and I've got some other some other commentary when we get down to chapter 53 on that as well. I think there's even more within our tradition about that. that yeah, concept. yeah. And so that that's what I mean. And so I think there's something more I can say about this. I, I've said this before, but I want to say it again. There's more to Christ than Jesus. We talk about types of Christ. What it oh, And we, it's funny because we say types of Christ. We don't say types of Jesus. So it's like we don't get it, right? Mm-hmm. We don't get what we mm-hmm. ourselves are saying. It's not types of Jesus. It's types of Christ. Jesus is a type of Christ. You are a type of Christ. I am a type of Christ. This is the realization that we need to come into. Yeah. And then specifically what Isaiah is talking about, as we've said before, in chapter 52, verse 14, there's this phrase, my servant, which again, this has been interpreted as Jesus by Christians, but here it's specifically referring to the Israelite exiles all the way through chapter 53. The suffering servant is Israel in exile, like we we said before. The New Testament writers used this as imagery to demonstrate how Jesus was the, quote, in the flesh embodiment of their experience as a people. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, as he says, but then he's also the fulfillment of Jewish history. Ben, I want to go back and and quickly mention a a grammar point to what you were just saying, Hmm. which is how can somebody, how could it be read either two things or two persons, male persons? And so the two, as you mentioned, if that's all Hmm. the text has, the two, you and I know that the two can have gender and mm-hmm. number, right? And so, and even case. And so that could relate it to, it could relate it to either somebody who's mentioned, two people who are mentioned in the sentence, or to two things that are mentioned in the sentence, or, and this is what we're looking at here, if the things are not mentioned because they've already been mentioned, then the two can be understood to be either the two things or the two male persons, right? Yes, this is the idea. And so then going back to where you were talking about how, and, and we said this earlier too, that it's some, we can see that we can read this as some of the people, those of, of Israel, those who went into exile, those who were the ones who received the stripes, that they sort of, they represent everyone, right? That, that somebody doing it is enough. Not everybody has to do it, right? This is the idea. We talk about the, the atonement what we call the atonement of Christ as being universal and eternal, by which we mean one time is all it takes, right? This doesn't have to happen again, whatever that means. So in it reminded me of something in Islamic law. In Islamic law, and Islamic law, what's called sharia, right? That is covers all of the aspects, like in the in the ancient, you know, Hebrew context, Israelite context, you have that government and religion are really not separate. In that same way, all of the things that just like there's halakha in, in Jewish tradition, Sharia gives us the rules about how we conduct our affairs, right? Personal, family, you know, community, the whole thing. 
So there's a, a distinction in Islamic law between what's called fard ain and far kifaya. And the fard ain is something, it's a duty. Fard means duty. Everybody has to do it. Um, but okay, I say everybody has to do it. If it's fard ain, then everybody has to do it. Each person, each individual has to do it. But there's some things that are fard kifaya. And this means that kifaya means that it's enough. So if mm. somebody has to be a doctor, mm. because people will need a doctor, right? But not everybody has to be a doctor. There's certain things, everybody has to pray, but only some people have to be doctors. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think it works in the same way, right? The image that the poet is projecting onto the people or part of the people is sufficient, right? And and not only is it sufficient to pro- project all of it onto one person, but it's also even cooler. I mean, you're writing a poem, you want to just say there's a person that is that has all these qualities, right? And so that becomes archetypal. And because it's yeah. archetypal, it can be embodied by Jeremiah. It can be embodied by Jesus of Nazareth, it can be embodied by Isaiah himself, or second Isaiah, as the case may be, and by you and me. So Isaiah chapter 53 is not actually quoted by Nephi in the Book of Mormon, even though the, it does exist in the Book of Mormon. You know, we look at Nephi as he's the one that quotes Isaiah so much. There is another person besides Jesus in the Book of Mormon that quotes Isaiah, and that's Abinadi. And Abinadi is the one that quotes Isaiah chapter 53. And what's so interesting to me about that is Abinadi, if you read the story of Abinadi, you see that he is also a fulfillment of the suffering servant. He's persecuted, he's executed, and then his seed grows into the church through Alma. And so he even bears that out within his his commentary, Abinadi's commentary on these chapters. And so again, another example within our tradition of somebody who fulfills this concept of the suffering servant, but that we don't see as as Jesus, right? right but this is right. still a fulfillment of I this prof- prophecy within the Book of Mormon. So Jesus is the suffering servant, and so can you. And so can you. <laughs> <laughs> and so did Abinadi and Jeremiah. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Once again, an embodiment of an archetype in another prophet in a different context. Yeah. Chapter 54 for me, is another love poem from God. In this, there's an interesting part around verses 8 through 17. He likens the exile and the return to the flood and the restoration, right? And this is just blatant, like a blatant thing. He says, okay, the people are going to exile and they return. And this is just like the flood of Noah, where we had order and then disorder, non-order, reorder. That's what we talked about when we did the that. So we have the exile and the return, and then the restoration. And all of this is being recreated again. And then God is going to redo or remake his covenant with the people and make a promise to them just like he did to Noah and to the whole earth. And this is where we get in the idea that, you know, not only is is Israel going to be restored, but now once they're restored, they're going to become a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. All of the people are going to acknowledge that he's God. So again, this is a promise to the whole world, just like the flood, not just isolated to those people anymore. This is the concept that then the Christians take after Jesus, you know, Paul and and Peter and say, oh, the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews anymore. Yeah. yeah, And, and, you know, and it's already always happening. And, you know, it's to your last point about the, the gospel not being for the Jews only. Again, to me, it was surprising to see here in Isaiah, that kind of cosmopolitanism, meaning yeah. that the whole world is my city, not just this 
right? When, when I say city, I mean in, in the Greek sense of polis, this people, right? My nation. Yes, we start off with Yahweh, Israel's tribal God. But God, that that's their understanding, right? I'm not saying that's who he is. That's their understanding. Mm. And he's expanding their understanding. They're going to become mm-hmm. connected with everyone. And again, that's where I'm saying, that's where we're, you know, astrologically speaking, I wasn't going to go there. I'm going to go there now, Ben. Astrologically <laughs> speaking. Now, again, before I say that anything about astrology, I'm not talking about the horoscope in the newspaper. And I also don't actually know a lot about astrology, but there's some symbolism I can go into a little bit. You know, they said when, you know, when I say they, I mean, in modern times, they say, they not they said, they say that alchemists, they just didn't know what they were doing. The silly people, they thought they could turn base metals into gold. And the alchemists said, our gold is not your gold. They said that. Some people say, you know, alchemy was chemistry. Proto-chemistry. Um, <laughs> Protochemistry, right, exactly. Whereas, as our friend Morgan Aldous puts it, chemistry is alchemy denuded of its deeper meaning, right? And so there's mm-hmm. there's a sense in which astrology works the same way. They had astrology and astronomy at the same time. It's not that one replaces the other. And so some of this sounds like, when you talk about planets, it sounds like astronomy, but again, this is astrology. It is the case that the axis of the Earth points to a different constellation every couple thousand years. This isn't an exact science because it's not astronomy, but part of it is astronomy, right? The the axis does point and there Mm. are constellations out there and this moves and it changes every couple thousand years. And this is where I was talking earlier about, you know, the time of Moses. This is in Aries. This is the god of war. When the people come down from the mountain and they're putting the, making the golden calf, this is a reversion to Taurus, the age before. After this Mm. age comes the age of Pisces. We get this is an age of of faith. And then comes the age of Aquarius. Now, again, this is not an exact science. If you would like to know, and I wanted to know, Ben, are we in the age of Aquarius? It turns out it's not easy to find out. (laughs) If anyone knows, let me know. Let me know. Maybe Jacob Strong knows. Jacob, reach out to me. Are we in the age of Aquarius? But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, which way do we have to be pointing or whatever, or when does that happen? In what year did it happen? Or or is it happening? Or it's going to happen? But really what I'm saying is, I think in some sense, we either are or are entering into that age, regardless of what I understand about the axis of the earth and the constellations, right? I don't know that much about that, but I see what's happening around me and I see an awakening. Interesting. An awakening of of uh, knowledge, right? Not just of faith, but of knowledge, of experience. Because again, there are ways to know. You have people, you know, Sam Harris, one of the new atheists, he says, he's got a great program, by the way, the Waking Up app. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in the yeah, middle of meditation. a trial. I, I love it. You know, it's great. But, you know, he, and he's teaching Vipassana, you know, a transcendental meditation from, but he said, but he tells you, but don't worry, you don't have to take on any unjustified beliefs. And you think, you know, there are more ways to justify your beliefs than through your senses. And so there's an experience of God that I think is enveloping the world. And I don't think that the people that, that you know, that don't have religion, that, that say they're spiritual, I don't think they're wrong. Right? I think there's a sense in which they're experiencing God. And so there's an awakening that's that's occurring. And I think it's really exciting. The way that articulate it and, and the vocabulary they use may be different. Right. But when you get down to it, the experience may not be so different. Right. Yeah. Not experience doesn't have theology, right? Yeah. A mystical yeah. experience doesn't have theology because it doesn't fit into words. 
to have theology, you have to go into words. And, you know, my experiences of God don't fit into words. As Wittgenstein said, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must remain silent. So that's a theme, Ben, right? That's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's, that's where this is all headed. Isaiah 66, the end, right? That's where we're going. Revelation, yeah. the last book of the Bible altogether, if you're Christian, right? That's where yeah. this is going. But we're not there yet. A couple yet. more things before 66 I want to touch on. And, and if I go past something, you, you know, you want to talk about this, great. But man, how about chapter 58? This is a great discourse on fasting. We get verses, particularly verses 6 through 9, this is what is genuine fasting. So if someone is looking for a, a mode in which they can have a better experience of, of God and, and relationship in that way, look at these verses. Look at chapter 58 and see if fasting, at least fasting in this way, maybe different than you've ever done before, isn't a way to do it, right? So verses six through nine. Is not this the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. Beautiful. You know, I do want to go back a, a couple of chapters to 55. I saw a few things in chapter 55 that I wanted to bring out. One is, in, in the first two verses, you know, we're being offered some food. Although it doesn't seem to be about, right? It's not, it's not about nursing our bodies. It's something spiritually nourishing. And so it reminded me of John 4.14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And so I see a parallel between Isaiah 55, 1 through 2 and that verse from John. That stood out to me. And then it's interesting in, in verse 3, Israel keeps breaking its covenant. And what's Yahweh's response? You know what? An everlasting covenant. How about that? Just like, you guys, you're not keeping your covenant. I'm going to perform a marvelous work and a wonder. And now an everlasting covenant. God is great. And chapter 55, I also see in verse 5 an example of cosmopolitanism that's comparable with Jesus's. Will you read that verse, Ben? Sure. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Yeah. So it's it's not just about Israel anymore, right? It's not just about their nation. It's about all nations. It's about the same kind of cosmopolitanism that, that I thought of as showing up, you know, originally for me, you know, I thought in, G in Jesus, right? It, it's also found in Stoicism, you know, since, you know, as, as I've studied philosophy, I, I learned that that's part of Stoicism too. I had an interesting conversation with Shiloh Logan, founder of Latter-day Peace Studies. He called me up one day, we studied philosophy together. He says, there are no nonviolent philosophers, you know? And, and I said, and I, right away, I thought of 
Gandhi. Oh, Gandhi's not a philosopher. And then, you know, same. <laughs> it was like that, right? I kept, I kept trying to think of examples and I heard, gosh, they're not philosophers. And so I really had to, you know, I had to concede the point at least for the moment and I had to think about it some more. And then I realized, wait a minute. The, the, not only are the Stoics teaching cosmopolitanism, they're also teaching many of the other same lessons that Jesus taught. And as a matter of fact, Jesus was born around the same time as Seneca, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, the tutor of Nero. They were both born somewhere between 6 and 4 BCE. And so that was the predominant religion of the time. When I say religion, I mean there's a sense in which we think of religion as having to do with the relationship with how to live your life right with the relationship between man and deity and how and it tells us how to live our lives and sometimes institutionalized right yeah that experience that was philosophy and antiquity and then what the what we call roman religion was more like the relationship between man and the state right and so that's more like what we call patriotism today although i don't think that's or nationalism it's more like nationalism, yeah. It's not true patriotism. So the idea of nationalism of, you know, USA, USA, support the troops, my country, right or wrong, that kind of idea is is more like Roman religion. And so what I'm saying is that the teachings, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that different in, in some ways from the religion of the Stoics, the philosophy that I'm calling religion of the Stoics. Mm. So... Wouldn't the statement there are no nonviolent philosophers just sort of raise the question or, or beg the question, well, what do you mean by philosophers? What's defined as a philosopher? Is this someone who has written down and articulated a specific system of thought? Or is this just somebody that has expressed a way to live? And and those right. aren't always the different thing, right? But you know, right. obviously we've got like our are more modern types of philosophers who have have written books that have like whole systems of thought, you know, epistemology and 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 all of this stuff. And, yeah, and, and yet the we can go back too. and we can say, you know, ancients have have these sort of moral types of assertions, but they may not always be considered a, a philosopher with a whole system of thought, right? Yeah, not all of them. I mean, the ancients had systematic thought, you know, with the starting with the Greeks and but the Roman Stoics didn't care for physics, you know, what we call metaphysics today. What they called logic, we call epistemology. They didn't really think much about that. They wrote they wrote about ethics. They, it was all about how to live your life. And again, that's why I compare it to religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, I think, you know, between two philosophers, you know, between me and Shiloh, I just meant, you know, people that we recognize as philosophers, but you're right. Anyone who's articulating a nonviolent way of life is a nonviolent philosopher. I'll grant you that. Maybe uh, Henry David Thoreau. Oh, that'd be a good one. <laughs> I did not think of him until just now. I'll have to call up Shiloh. <laughs> There's one last thing, and and this is almost a verse-by-verse commentary, but I'm not going to keep going through the chapter. It's just 55-7 now. It's interesting because this verse calls for a change of thoughts, not just a change of action. So Again, this made me think of Jesus, right? This made me think of the Sermon on the Mount, mm. where where we're not. So again, we think of these these concepts like cosmopolitanism, like changing your thoughts, not just your actions. That this is something that shows up with the Sermon on the Mount. I see it right here in Isaiah. Isaiah sixty also has cosmopolitanism in it. Isaiah sixty one again. This is Jesus quotes from chapter sixty one, right, in the synagogue, yes. and when he's yeah. in his hometown in Nazareth. Yeah, verse 1 and part of verse 2. Yeah, and that's very cosmopolitan too. 
Yeah, the, these verses in Isaiah are traditionally understood to be referencing the person of the Messiah, even within the Jewish tradition of the time of Jesus and before, the person of the Messiah specifically. So when Jesus was quoting these, he was being very direct in his declaration of himself as, quote unquote, the Messiah, like the Messiah that they had been looking for, or maybe the Messiah they hadn't been looking for, but that they should have been looking for, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, when you start saying the Messiah, the one that should have been, you mm -hmm. know, the one, the one, the one, it reminds me there are four different messiahs. And that's something yes. I learned about in, yes. in studying this reading, right? And so the difference between, and I only really read about two of them, right? You have the Messiah bin David, right? Who's the one we say is Jesus, right? Son of David, and, yeah. Right. And then there's Ben Yusuf, right? The son of Joseph. And mm -hmm. so this, again, can relate back to Jeremiah, back to that reading. Chapters 63 through 66, these are going back to the beginning where I talked about how when people read in Isaiah and they, they saw things that they couldn't find any fulfillment of. You know, I, I talked about how often we, we find fulfillment of Isaiah everywhere, so I always think it's talking about us. And yet, when we get to 63 through 66, these chapters, I think in general, people had a more difficult time seeing their fulfillment, their literal fulfillment within their, their own lifespan bias, right? Within their time and their experience. And so what happens in these chapters is these things, these end time things, so to speak, they become sort of explained away as, okay, these prophecies haven't come to pass yet. And the reason is people are still too wicked for them to come to pass. And, and we kind of do this in our time as well, right? Like we have all of these things that we're anticipating as Latter-day Saints, even within the name of the church, right? Latter-day, <laughs> as, right. as prefacing the, the second coming of Christ. And we, we throw this thing in all the time and we say, well, you know, people are just too wicked or, or maybe they're not wicked enough in, in some contexts, right? And, but the wickedness of the people is, is always given as an excuse as to why these certain prophecies haven't come to pass or are, are coming to pass more, you know, in a particular way. Yeah, well, most, you know, most Christians are either premillenarian or postmillenarian. Mormons are both premillenarian and postmillenarian. And I do say Mormons intentionally because I'm not just thinking of Latter-day Saints. So what does that mean? You know, for some, things have to get bad enough that Jesus comes again. For others, there has to be a people good enough, you know, ready to receive him. Right. And mm. so these are two different ideas. And again, most Christians pick one or the other. We pick both. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So maybe some Latter-day Saints or Mormons pick one or the other and some pick right. both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we're, we're not going to go into that. Let's not. <laughs> we don't have to confess, Ben. So with that, you know, I don't know in all seriousness, I, I don't know that there's a one time end of the world event other than mm. and this is one idea I haven't expressed yet, Ben. I know someday my world is going to end, right? Mm -hmm. So that's always, already always true, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the world is ending all the time, right? Not yeah. just the Black Death, even the pandemic that we just went through changed the world, right? The world right. that was pre-pandemic ended, and now this is a new world. And this is something we see over and over and over in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, right? We see this of, if we go from chaos to order, 
to disorder, to non-order, to reorder. There's restoration. We fail. God continues, right? He doesn't give up on us. We don't do it. He says, I'm going to do more for you. We do even less. He says, I'm going to do even more, right? <laughs> wow. And, and he's wooing us, right? <laughs> he's wooing us. He wants to marry us, right? This is a marriage between heaven and earth. You could think of us as our own, if you think of the fall as a fall into sort of an ego awareness, right? And not, not a subjective awareness, but some kind of objective awareness where the subject is the true self and, and the, the objective is actually the less real in some sense, right? This is what, what I look like in the mirror or in the water or, you know, what people think of me, this kind of thing, right? So, so our fall can be understood psychologically as falling into the trap of the ego, right? And so in some sense, we have to be able to return to God, right? And that means to return to ourselves, to our true selves, to our true self, right? Hmm. Yeah. For me, that's symbolized, but also in people's experience, this, this could be literal because they're actually experiencing it in the idea that we have of receiving the Holy Ghost, right? That the presence of God within us and, and returning to a knowledge of our true self with God in us. Yeah. Among those things I read in preparing for this podcast, this stood out from one commentator on Isaiah 64, 6. And this is from Tara Lee Cobble. She has a, her own podcast on the Bible and study groups all over the world. Polluted garment refers to a woman's menstrual rag, and people who are unclean can't enter the temple without first being purified. The unclean person and the polluted garment are unacceptable in God's sight. Isaiah is comparing Israel's false worship to both of these. They sacrifice to God, but also worship idols. They fast to be showy. They perform so-called righteous deeds with unrighteous motives. So it's true for them that their righteous deeds are like filthy rags, unacceptable to God. I thought that was an interesting image because it reminded me, you know, I was teaching Islamic ethics for about seven years at Utah Valley University. And one summer I taught a class out in Heber and there's an, a UVU annex there. And I had one student, only one student. I thought it was awesome because it just means I only had to grade one paper. Right? I got paid just the same as if I had graded 30 papers. But this student was offended. She was offended when I was explaining a point like this. And that is that you know during menstruation that Muslim women cannot pray. And that's because they are ritually impure. And she understood because she understood not ritually. She understood that somehow she would be impure if she would be menstruating. And she would be menstruating because she would be a woman. And therefore, she would be impure by virtue of being a woman. And this is what she heard, right? And she was complaining against me that the class was having to do with Islam at all, yet alone too much. And she was told by whoever she complained to that she should have read the description of the course. <laughs> hmm. But the point is, there's a difference between being unclean and being ritually unclean. And so here, when we talk about becoming ritually clean, we can think of that as becoming purified. And the things that we do that are ritual cleansings, like baptisms, if you want to think of that as a ritual cleansing, I think of it more as a, a death and rebirth, a burial and a rebirth, right? Death, burial, rebirth. But if you want to think about washings and anointings, right? These are these kind of temple rites are intended to be ritually purifying, right? They're, they're rituals that purify. 
So a ritual impurity is is not the same thing as sin. And we've talked about this before, right? Even when we did Leviticus, we talked about how ritual That's uncleanness right. is not the same as sin. This isn't saying that the person specifically has has done something that needs repentance, right? It's saying that in order to get the person within a, a mode and a mindset and a preparation to commune with God, there's certain sort of rituals or or things that they have to go through in order to prepare themselves for that. And sometimes it's just the everyday normal things, perfectly good of life that make us quote unquote ritually impure because they take our mind off of these higher, more spiritual things. And so I can see the symbolism there, even if I think that, you know, that's probably a, a, a difficult way within our modern society to, to represent the concept. And so we've found better ways of representing it. But within the theological and historical and cultural setting that it's in, you know, it makes it makes sense and it it sort of fits the the understanding. Yeah, and I don't know that the I, I, I don't doubt that the text can support this reading. I don't know that that's the, the intention of the writer, that the garment, the polluted garment refers to a woman's menstrual rag as entirely Kabo put it. But it just shows you you can read it this way, right? It can be read this way. And this is how we do it. And this is, if nothing else, if this isn't the plain meaning of the text, then this is an allegorical meaning. And it is one that is that can be supported by the text. Now, as you pointed out in one of the previous episodes we recorded on Isaiah, this kind of highly symbolic poetry can end up symbolizing for the meaning, right? Which is something we produce that's not necessarily in the text. That can be just about anything, right? But not anything, your point, Ben, I think, was that there are better readings, right? That some readings are better than others. And my point that I want to tack on to that, I think that's a really good point. And I want to tack on this other point, which is the text doesn't support any and all readings. There are some readings that it cannot support. And I want to go back to this idea of the Prashat and the Darash, right? The idea of the the face value meaning, right? The, on the face of it, what it says, as opposed to the allegorical one thing the allegorical interpretation shouldn't do is contradict the plain meaning of the text. And by the way, that doesn't happen if we say that, you know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, or Deuter Isaiah, Jesus, and Abinadi are the suffering servant. So those those kind of interpretations, allegorical interpretations, mystical interpretations, are supported. So we can go ahead and make those kinds of interpretations, and the very personal ones too, Right. So, you know, and then we come to Isaiah 65, 17, right? And here we have, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And this is the end. This is the last chapter. And this occurs again in Revelation, in the last chapter of the mm -hmm. New Testament or of the whole Christian Bible as we have it. Now, there's something I want to go into here. I mentioned this earlier, Ben, and this is my last point on the last chapter. It's a translation issue, which I believe has theological implications, or rather the theology informs the translation, right? I looked into the Hebrew carefully. I consulted my own rabbi. You know, rabbi means my master. Uh, you could say my lord. It's translated kurios in the Greek, right? But rabbi means my master. So I went to my Hebrew teacher and I just verified this. So here's what we've got. In King James Version, Isaiah 66, 22 reads, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, 
shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And that's a good translation, Ben. And so my my quarrel with it is small, but I think it's significant. And I think theology may have something to do with it. Here's a better translation. And this is from Abraham Gileadi. And the new heavens and the new earth which I make, so in King James we had I will make, shall endure before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and name endure. There's a sense in which, you know, these these makings in the Hebrew, they're not in the future. They're actually active participles. So they're currently happening and they're as I like to put it, already always happening. Okay, this is ha- the new heavens and the new earth are coming about. He's making them now. So here's a better translation again. This is from Alter. Alter translates, For as the new heavens and the new earth I am making, I am making, stand before me, not shall endure, stand before me also in the present, said the Lord, so shall stand your seed and your name. I believe the Hebrew reads, well, Again, I don't think it's wrong to say, so shall stand your name, because it's making this comparison, just as this is, so this shall be, right? But I think all of it's just happening in the present continuous, right? In this kind of, in this active participial way, where it's already always happening. When I say I read, I don't just mean, you know, this is something I'm doing right now. I mean, it's what I always do, right? I'm already always reading. It's who hmm. I am. It's what I do. And so this is you who do God is. do it from is. time this to time, every doing. day. Yeah. It's a regular yeah, thing. Yeah. It's, it's what I do. I read. And what does God do? He creates new heavens and a new earth every time, whether, you know, in Genesis, whether in after the flood, whether in the Exodus story, whether and there's always, because if you're leaving, if you went into exile, it's a new world. And if you come back, it's a new world. Whether you're coming or whether you're going, it's a new beginning. And it's a new creation, and you get to create it. So that's, well, that's Isaiah, Isaiah, Christopher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's good stuff. I have a feeling it's going to stay with us. Yeah. Like Job. Yeah. It, Job hasn't let go of me. <laughs> and I'm yeah. really looking forward to Jeremiah. Yeah. Well, Ben, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Always a good time, Christopher and. So, yeah, we throw another thanks out, as always, to those who participate in the Latter-day Peace Studies Project with us, editors. Thank you. Social media. Thank you guys so much. And we'll sign off for Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado.